Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask people to tell me the five things from their life that they'd like to put into a time capsule, hence the title. They tell me four things that they cherish, but also one thing that they'd like to get rid of from their life, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the actor Nicholas Burns. Nick is probably best known for playing the title role in the Chris Morris and Charlie Brooker comedy Nathan Barley and for his role in the first three series of the ITV comedy Benidorm. But he's also been in The Bill, Cambridge Spies, Absolute Power, A Touch of Frost, Swiss Tony, The Mighty Boosh, the sketch show Man Stroke Woman, Agatha Christie's Marple, the BBC Two comedies Roman's Empire and The IT Crowd, Misfits, Poirot, Uncle, the TV film Coalition in which he played Ed Balls, minus the Gangnam Style dance, obviously, Marley's Ghost, Doctor Who, The Crown, Midsummer Murders, Strike, Manhunt and Small Axe. He was in the films The Lady in the Van, Ghost Stories and Emma, amongst others, and on stage he's been in Much Ado About Nothing, The Madness of George W., Ghost Stories again, The Village Bike at the Royal Court, The Recruiting Officer at the Donmar and The Magistrate at the National Theatre. I'm delighted to give you the five things, good and bad, that Nick Burns has chosen to put in his time capsule. I hope you enjoy them. I struggled through them with a really nasty throat infection, but fortunately, Nick does most of the talking. Have fun. Mike. What perfect timing. Ah, how are you? I'm all right, a bit throaty. A little bit. Yeah, are you, st- are you still feeling under the weather? I don't feel bad. Oh, good. I just can't get my beautiful dulcet tones. <laughs> like Julian Clary would say, I've been sucking a fisherman's friend all day. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's not COVID, presumably? No, it's not. No, I've tested several times. It's not. We've gone back to the old days, where, in fact, the worst curse you could get was a sore throat. Yeah. 
Um, but thank you so much for asking me on this. No, I'm delighted. It's such a great podcast. I've listened to so many of them. Really? Uh, yeah, I've listened to loads. I think they're brilliant. Such a good insight into, you know, how people tick. It's brilliant. I imagine for you, it's just such a lovely a lovely thing to do. I mean, you're very good in the, as an interviewer because, you know, you just let people, you know, let people speak and you listen to what they're saying. And that's so important. So you really do feel that you get to know the person by the end of the podcast. Pardon? <laughs> no, sorry, I can't. I could never resist the pardon joke. <laughs> sorry. No, it's brilliant. <laughs> Let's get on with what we're supposed to be doing. Thank you. Okay. You're going to tell me five things from your life, Nick, that you want to put into a time capsule. That's right. Yeah. It's been a long process, I have to say, what to put in. But uh, I'm, I think I'm happy with what I've got. Three of the items that are going in the time capsule, I actually have them physically. Right. The first thing I want to put in is this. Uh, your listeners won't be able to see this, obviously, but it's a, it's a dish, mm-hmm. it's a serving dish. And it's quite beautiful, actually. It was given to me by my mother about uh, three months ago. And mm-hmm. it's the kind of dish that you would put things like... You could put anything in it. You could put roast potatoes in or cauliflower cheese or yeah. you know, any any vegetable that you'd like to, to put in, really. And uh, Would you like to list some more? <laughs> parsnips, broccoli, yeah. The, the, the reason I'd like to put it in is because of where it's from and what it signifies. It's, it's made, I'm originally from Derby. Mm-hmm. Um, and Derby is renowned for three things, I would say. When you speak to most people, about it most people know it for derby county football club of course rolls royce Mm -hmm. uh, is based in derby they had a factory there and that's the base of rolls royce and the other thing is crown derby which is what this dish is made from and it's a um i think it's the oldest bone china manufacturer in england right and when i grew up because i lived in derby they had a they had a factory there and they had a factory shop and if you didn't have something uh, that was proper Crown Derby. Most people had something from the seconds, you know, the stuff that they, you know, that yeah. they didn't, they didn't get quite right, and so they mm-hmm. put in the factory shop. And and I really uh, wanted to put that in because my parents were incredibly sociable. They were uh, very good entertainers. They they had lots of parties. Every Sunday we sat around the table and had, you know, lovely Sunday lunches. My mum was a and is still a brilliant cook. And that was sort of my happy place. And wherever we went, uh, and we went to lots of you know people's houses, they would often serve food out of these Crown Derby things. And I wanted to choose something that kind of encapsulated that feeling of you know lovely hospitality, mixing with friends and family, sitting around a table and eating together. And um, and I and I wanted something as well from where I'm from because I had a I had a really you know. I'm not one of the, one of those actors who's had it bad. I mean, I, I always feel incredibly lucky because I had a. I look back and think I had such an idyllic childhood. I, I really did. I'm, I'm so lucky and I'm so appreciative. I had parents who really loved me, two older brothers who really loved me, and 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 I loved them, and we were a really happy family. And my mum and dad loved each other. And so when I look back to my childhood and think of those really happy times i think of you know the parties and all the people that we knew on on the social scene as well as our our family cousins and and that kind of thing and mm. i just think as a symbol of all that that piece of crown derby would uh, 
would always remind me of those happy times. Yes, getting ready for lunch and it comes out of the cupboard. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> the, the thing I nearly put in was the institution of Sunday lunch because that was also, you know, a, a key thing. But that was always quite low key. I mean, we would... I was I was raised a Catholic. We'd go to go to mass in the morning while well, Dad and I would, and my brothers if they were around. And we'd come back, and you know the house would be full of these amazing smells. Mm-hmm. And you know, Mum would make the most amazing roast potatoes and gravy, and and yeah, just just lovely sort of I suppose very English childhood memories. I had a very similar childhood, again Catholic, and going to church with oh, my really? father. And coming back, finding the house with those lovely smells. But my mum was a terrible cook. Oh, was she? <laughs> really terrible. <laughs> oh, no. I, I mean, mum was, yeah, and she still is. I mean, she still will do amazing, you know, Sunday lunches. I've got two, two older brothers and uh, we've all got children and we'll all go back, you know, for the weekend. And mum will cater for, you know, all of us, which is about sort of 14, mm-hmm. all told now, and, uh, and, and not bat an eyelid. And still as delicious as ever. And uh, mm. yeah. Those people are precious in your life, aren't they? The people who who see that as an important thing and organise it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I find that they are few and far between. I mean, it's something I've really tried to do with my family. You know, I've, I've really tried to sort of keep that tradition going of mm. sitting around a table and eating good food and, you know, trying to be as, as good a cook as I can be. And just, uh, yeah, because I think it's... I think it's really important. And I didn't, I suppose I didn't quite realise at the time, but I certainly look back with huge fondness and now recognise the importance of all of that. I think it's, uh, I think it's lovely. Mm. So I've got so many, uh, so many happy memories as a child and then growing up as an adult and going back, you know, from university and drama school and all that and going back to mum and dad's for the weekend and so looking forward to that gorgeous <laughs> Sunday lunch. So what brought your mother to give you this dish only three months ago? Well, I think she was having one of her... She's got lots of stuff in her kitchen that she just doesn't use and she's mm. sort of trying to declutter. And, and I mean, I don't think it's... It's not It's not worth anything. It's, um, it's a very nice thing. But it's... Um, yeah, I think she was just decluttering and yes. she knew I'd appreciate it, I guess. Oh, that's nice though, isn't it, that she recognised that? Yeah. That she knew that that item would would remind you of those things. Yeah, and she she knows that I love a um I love to cook a Sunday lunch and uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's all all from from her and dad really. What did they do, your parents? Um my dad was a GP. He was oh. a doctor. Um and his parents were Irish. They came over and settled in in Derby, and his father was a GP as well. And um, yeah, he 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 took over the the family practice. My dad, mm. but sadly, he died. Well, two thousand and one, twenty one twenty one years ago. Amazing, um, isn't it? How quickly that I know. goes by. Yeah, yeah, it does. And of course, you know, I never don't miss him. I sort of miss him every day, really. But mm. and mum, she was a. Um, well, she sort of did. She did a few things actually. She one of the things she did was she ran a catering business with two or three of her friends called Food Galore, <laughs> and I think there was a there was a time in the seventies and eighties where perhaps every wedding in Derbyshire would have been or party would have been uh, catered for by them. They were really really good, but they didn't do it for very long. But they are the ones; those those sort of three or four women are, are the ones whose parties I remember the most. Mm. You know, they, they were great great family friends growing up and um they all had crown derby they often cooked the same sorts of things um <laughs> lots of drink 
very, very hospitable and generous always. That skill of catering for 250, when it's narrowed down to 10, yeah. it, it's amazing, isn't it? Yes. Because you still feel as if you're being given a banquet. Yeah, absolutely. All my parents' friends, they were all fantastically, and my aunts and uncles, all brilliant at all that, which is lovely. Yes. What a fantastic thing to have been taught as a young man. Yeah, yeah. It's a great gift. Thank you. Well, it's certainly um, something I, I look back on with huge fondness. Well, let's put it into the time capsule as your first item, that Crown Derby dish. That goes in as number one. Thank you very much. Thank you. OK, so what's um, what's your second thing? Uh, my second thing I don't actually have physically, sadly. Well, we'll not talk about it then. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, what it is, is a Ferguson Video Star VCR. Ooh which was the very first video player, VCR, I guess is the correct term for it, that we ever had. And I can remember going as a family to this electrical shop in Derby to buy this video. And I reckon it was probably about 1982, so I would have been five. Mm. And I can remember it. I can really remember it. <laughs> we, were such a, we were such a telly family. Uh, you know, we always, we always, you know, watched a lot of telly. And um, so that was a fairly, as soon as they came out, we were quite, we were quite early adopters, I think. And I remember it cost, and I've, I've actually Googled it. So I know this is right. Mm. It cost 500 pounds. Oh my word. In 1982. So that's, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I couldn't quite believe it was that much. So anyway, yeah, we went to buy this thing and I can remember it really clearly. It was sort of silver and it was a, it was a top loader. So, you know, you, you put the, you put the, the VHS tape in at the top, yeah. you press this button and I can see it so clearly and you can see it online. And of course what it meant, and I say this to my children, I say, you know, they, they now watch all the streaming platforms mm -hmm. and, and can access any film from any time, even if it came out at the cinema. I mean, these days, especially if it came out at the cinema a week or two ago, yeah. it's often simultaneously uh, available on streaming platforms. So they find it absolutely insane that if I hadn't seen a film that had come out that year, I might have to wait you know, 12 months till it came out on video. Mm. And that was the, that was the thing. And certainly much longer until it, it was, it was on telly. And this idea that you could tape things off the telly, mm. you could tape programs that you liked. And it kind of opened up a whole new world to us. And it certainly did to me as a, as a, as a young five-year-old child. I've got two older brothers. There's only 14 months between them. And there, there's a, there's a bit of a gap. Andy is seven years older than me and Dom is eight years. So there's, there's, there's a year between them. And, and so they're very close, but they kind of, as often happens, I think in these sorts of families, when you have older brothers, they, they sort of set the, um, you know, the taste for things, yes. all things cultural, <laughs> so music and film and TV. So when the young ones came out in the early eighties, mm. even though it was probably not quite appropriate for a young primary school child, of course, they recorded it, and 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 we watched it. And Blackadder—they're the—they're the first two things: the the first series of Blackadder and the Young Ones. And we watched them so much. And we used to go on car journeys, and we used to do—you know—between the three of us, we'd do episodes where we'd say all the parts. And you know, and I—I I, a lot of it, I just didn't understand what what the hell was going on, but I just copied what the actors were doing, mm -hmm. and and found it funny. And and we all just absolutely loved it, and we still do. We still have very similar sense of humor so that i think was was quite an important all those shows and and things were really important in my when i look back i mean i still i still think of you know rick mail in in the young ones as you know i mean that 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 was just incredible it's you know yeah. we'd never seen anything quite like it felt like 
And everyone in the playground was saying, have you seen the young ones? Have you seen the latest episode? It was even at primary school. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was, it was, um, I mean, not everyone. I don't think everyone was allowed to watch it, but mm. those who were, we were, we were sort of obsessed. Yeah. And then Blackadder, again, my brothers and I have a real fondness for that first series, which was sort of, you know, people look back on that now. And I think even Rowan Atkinson has slightly disowned it because mm. he wrote it, I think, with, with Richard Curtis, I think, maybe. Yes, I think you're right. And I think Ben Elton came in for the latest series. And made it funny. Yeah. But we loved we loved series one. I mean, we really did. Yes, I mean, it's that... weird, isn't it? Because in it, he doesn't play the conniving, clever person. He plays the idiot. Yes. So the first Blackadder, he's the fool. Yes, exactly. And Baldrick's the clever one. Yeah, Baldrick is the clever one. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's weird. And they obviously thought that dynamic isn't as interesting as the... No. But uh, we particularly loved the... Uh, I mean... No, not many people know this, but we particularly loved the final episode, and, and Mum and Dad loved that as well. And we all used to to watch that when he gathers the six most evil men in the kingdom to take over the throne. Do you remember that one? Probably not. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so yes, we. So the video allowed us to watch these things again and again and again. And then as I got older, you know, I would because it was basically what they taped. I would watch, mm. and then as we got as I got older, they went off to boarding school. And I was at home kind of on my own. Looking back, I suppose, it was a bit like being an only child suddenly. Mm. But the thing I used to do is get home from school and um, and just sit in front of the telly and watch videos of films that I'd recorded. The main ones I remember being lots of James Bond. <laughs> in particular, Goldfinger and Live and Let Die were my two favourites. And possibly the two best theme tunes as well. Yeah. Mm. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think they're both, I, I, still, I still love them. And then um, watching things like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, I used to love and watch it over and over again. Ah, brilliant. And Raiders of the Lost Ark and Flash Gordon, I, I used to watch. And then, and then going on later into later childhood, I discovered lots of films that I you know, that are still my favourites to this day. Like um, I discovered Woody Allen. They'd do a season of Woody Allen films on Channel 4 or a season of Robert De Niro films. Yeah. So did you video them? and then watch them? Or did you video them as you watch them? I often had to video them uh, because they were, you know, on after my bedtime right, yeah. or they were on quite late at night. So, of course, that's the enormous advantage of having a video recorder. Yeah. That suddenly that comes into your life. Before that, if you had to go to bed or you'd missed it, you missed it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and so it was it was a real it was a real thing. Mm. And also then it gave, you know, and then, you know, of course, we then joined the video store um, and that was amazing. You know, and that was a sort of weekly treat on a Friday, maybe, or, you know, we'd go to the, we'd go to the video shop on, on London Road in Derby and you'd go in and you'd see all these films. Yeah. And, you know, I'd never, you know, lo lots of them, I can remember the images on the covers so well, the ones I really wanted to watch, like American Werewolf in London, mm. wasn't allowed to. And so I, I think a, a lot of the actors and directors and people I admire that I, I still admire to this day, I probably first ever watched on that video recorder. Yeah. And again, we, ha we have that lovely convivial thing of sitting there with my brothers or mum and dad and my brothers sitting there as a family and watching the, the films and TV shows that we, that we loved. And so that's the thing, I think, yeah. And, of course, it, it kind of informed my life. Yes. Watching too much telly informed my life. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's my second thing.
You have mentioned right at the beginning the two programmes that I sort of missed out on. Oh, really? Yes, I was asked if I wanted to be in the first series of Blackadder, and I wasn't available. I was busy. Oh, no. And also, Rick Mail came to my place, and I said how much I like the young ones, and he said, uh, oh, do you want to be in the next series? And rather flippantly, I said, I wouldn't be in that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I know if I'd pushed, if I'd pushed, if I'd gone, yeah, great, when, what part? Think about it now, write me in. Yeah. I could have yeah. got in, but I wasn't that sort of person, I'm afraid. I'd never have been. No, me neither. No. Rubbish at all that. Yeah. Oh, well, what a brilliant thing. I am going to Google it. I am going to Google that video player. Ferguson Video Star, yeah. I love the fact that you press the open button. Yeah. And they were buttons, weren't they? Proper push-down buttons. Yeah, 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 they were. They were. It was It was big. Yeah, chunky things. Yeah, chunky things. I'm yeah. going to Google it because I think maybe it's the same one that I got, but I got it from Radio Rentals. <laughs> right. So my first video recorder... I probably paid about a £1,000 for, but over a course of two and a half years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It was an absolutely essential bit of kit for us. Mm. Um, of course, it's all, it's all changed now. Yes. They don't know they're born, our children. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They can watch it on the telly. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> there we are. Okay, that goes in as your second item. So what's number three, Nick? Number three is um, it's a book called A Goodbye to Berlin by Christopher Isherwood. Is that the book that Cabaret is based on? It is, ex exactly ah. that, yeah. And when I was about 16, for our school play, we did Cabaret. Mm. And up to that point, I'd really loved acting, and, and I'd always done I'd always done plays at school, and I'd always, um, I'd always, you know, I'd always loved it. But I'd sort of been told that, not by my parents, I hasten to add, but, by, but generally by... Um, people who I know, grown-ups who I know, mm. they sort of said, you can't really do acting. Sorry, the dog is uh, is at the door. Can you hear that? <laughs> yeah, it's all right, don't worry. <laughs> um, Bloody Amazon. Yes, I know. <laughs> terrible, terrible. Can I get that? They're, they're ringing the bell Oh, now. yeah, yeah, do. Go is on. that okay? Yeah, no, go. Let me, let me just... Mm. Sorry. <sighs> Sorry about that, Mike. That's all right, mate. Don't worry. It's actually it's my passport. Oh, wow. Uh, which I need because I'm going away. <laughs> on Thursday. So um, it's annoying, look. Uh, blue. Blue. A bit depressing. <laughs> anyway. Um, so you were madly in love with acting and you always did acting at school. Yes, I always did acting at school. And, and I'd sort of started to say, you know, I'd quite like to be an actor. Mm. And mum and dad sort of said, that's absolutely fine. They were very encouraging. Just, you know, keep doing it and see, see how you go. Mm. But most other adults, you know, teachers at school or friends, family friends, have said, well, you know, it's a very good hobby, but not the best career, mm. not very reliable. You know, why don't you do something like... Um, Be a doctor. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> and I just sort of didn't really want to do any of those things. I just I just wanted to be an actor. But I, I kind of thought, well, I'll do something like journalism or, you know, I don't know, I'll do something else. I'll find something. But then I did this play, Age 16 Cabaret, and I played the MC, which... Is, is a part that I would never play now. I mean, I, I'd love to, but the, the reason I wouldn't ever play it is because I'm not a very good singer. I'm not certainly not good enough to sing it professionally, and I'm a terrible dancer. <laughs> but at school, we did this production, which was um, directed by teacher there, Martin Amherst Locke, who, who was my drama teacher all through until I was 18. And he was, he was brilliant and, and, and sort of, you know, 
cast me in lots of nice roles. And he cast me as the MC. And it was quite a tricky part to play for a 16-year-old. Mm. And he wanted it to be, you know, quite sexy. And he wanted it to be CD. And he wanted it to be as, you know, as it was. Mm. He didn't want to make it sort of too glitzy and glamorous. It was a really hard-hitting, which it, which it should be. But, you know, the MC is a sort of complicated, uh, sort of dark character. Uh, and, and I watched the film and watched Joel Grey and and I just I just loved the process of of, of finding the character mm. and I absolutely loved playing him. Mm. I mean, it was it, it was amazing. I, you know, the, the experience I'll, I'll never forget it. And and at the end of it, my housemaster at school, the guy called uh, Russell Muir, who I loved and was brilliant, uh, he gave me as a gift his copy of Goodbye to Berlin. And inside it says his name, mm. Cambridge, 1962. And he said, I had this when I was at university. And when I came to this school, I wrote to Christopher Isherwood wow. because he's an old boy of the school. And I wanted him to come and give a talk to some of the, the students about his life and, and his work. And he wrote back and, and he said, and the letter I'm giving to you, and it's in that, it's in that book. And he sort of... He said, you know, because it was a really good performance and you did really well and, and, and I think you should have it. Shall I read you the letter? Mm, do. Um, it says, 145 Adelaide Drive, Santa Monica, California. Mm. Dear Mr. Muir, thank you very much for your kind letter. I have absolutely nothing against coming to Repton. In fact, I'd love to see it again, but this is the first time I've been asked. This is June 13th, 1977, by the way. Mm. I have no idea what academic circles in England are like nowadays, but I had vaguely supposed that my notoriety as a homosexual might have debarred me, though that's pretty funny now I'm nearly 73. <laughs> if I did come, I'd be glad to speak to the Literary Society or any collection of students who are interested in writing. At present, I have no plans to come over, but a reason for doing so may appear sooner than I think. If one does, and I'm not caught in a hopeless rat race as I was last April, I'll get in touch with you. Sincerely, Christopher Isherwood. I mean, I just think that's a really lovely, interesting document and, and and so kind of him to give it to me yes. and I've always sort of kept and cherished it because it's like a it's like a line all the way back to the beginning uh, you know he was at reps and where I was and he was obviously this great writer and it's also very sad that in the 70s you know he thought that his I mean he uses the word notoriety mm. as a homosexual mm -hmm. um uh would have debarred him from coming back which which now thankfully is a is a you know abhorrent notion really yes um and in fact had he stayed in berlin around that time that he's writing about it would almost certainly have um, made him a target for the nazis yeah mm. absolutely but i went to berlin oh did you and i stayed in a hotel randomly stayed in a hotel booked it thought that looks all right to stay there and found that it was in the street that he lived in really yes oh my god amazing i know i love cabaret and I think that you should get in touch with the people who are doing it at the moment, because when Eddie Redmayne is finished, because I think it's important that the people in Cabaret are not great singers. In a way, they sort of got it wrong with the film. It's a brilliant film. But no, it is. she's just such an amazing singer, and she shouldn't be. These are not very good performers. Yes. I suppose you've got to get that, that balance between... You know, there, there does need to be a certain amount of skill, doesn't there? Mm -hmm. I mean, if someone's absolutely hopeless, it's going to be a fairly unenjoyable evening. But when you think that Judy Dench played it originally? Yeah. And she can't sing at all? Yeah. I always think she can, though. I think she's... <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's so much soul there, isn't there, when she sings? Um, I suppose you're right. But I, I just, I think, you know, 
there's that probably that ship has sailed but um i did just absolutely adore it and it, and it completely set me on my uh, after that i thought this is what i'm going to do and actually i'm going to try and do it no matter what anyone tries to advise me mm. my parents were always completely supportive and brilliant about the whole thing well quite university and drama school yes they said um go to drama school by all means but i think you should get a degree first and actually that's probably that was probably very good advice mm. because aged 18 i was a very naive innocent sort of callow youth really i didn't have a clue about anything still don't really but <laughs> even less so then and so i did sort of need those three years of um growing up time i think mm. at uh, university before i went to drama school i think quite often now they're looking for people who have had what they call life experiences yes before they go to drama school i also think i wouldn't have got in aged 18 i think <laughs> you know the fact that i was that, that i was a bit older as you say you know probably probably helped yes I'm going to give you my MC before I do Shakespeare. (laughs) Thank you very much. Next. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly what it would have been. Yeah. Well, okay then. Sorry about my throat. I'm very glad that Goodbye to Berlin led you to say goodbye to journalism. Yes. So that's that's my uh, that's my third thing. Yes, oh, it is rattling through them. It's great. It's a lovely day so far. We've wandered back from church. We've had a lovely Sunday lunch with a Crown Derby <laughs> dish with Brussels sprouts in it this time. Okay. Uh, and then we've sat down as a family and watched a video. Yeah. And then slightly squiffy, <laughs> gone to bed and read goodbye to Berlin. So what happens the next day? Well, the next day it all gets a bit a bit strange because <laughs> the next thing I'm going to put in is. Right, it's time for some adverts, so we're going to take a short break. Hopefully one of the ads will be for Cough Sweets. See you in a moment. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. Let's return to my chat with the actor Nick Burns and see, firstly, if my voice holds out, and secondly, well, 
fourthly and fifthly, in fact, what else Nick would like to put in his time capsule. The next thing I'm going to put in is this. I don't know if you can see that clearly. What I'm holding up is a prop phone, and it's called the Wasp T12 Speech Tool, right. which was used by my character Nathan Barley in Nathan Barley. Mm. And that's going in because that's the professional job I think I've done that I've enjoyed the most. And uh, as a creative process, it was just incredible and worked with, you know, amazing people mm. and the whole experience was just amazing. Um, it was a show that was on in 2005 and written and directed by Chris Morris, mm. co-written by Charlie Brooker and the whole process of it was incredible um i was always massively in awe of of chris mm. I, I was a huge fan and when my agent told me that there was an audition where he, he wanted to to meet people for this for this part and it was based on charlie's he had an online sort of spoof radio times listing um called tv go home and mm. in it was a um am i allowed to swear on this yes uh, it's a very rude swear word. So um, <laughs> there was a program in this spoof radio TV listings called Cunt, uh, and it and it was about it was about uh, this character Nathan Barley, who was a um, he was a sort of trustafarian guy who worked in media and knocked around Shoreditch and Hoxton and places like that. Mm -hmm. And it was very much a, a type of person that if you lived in, in London in the early noughties, you would have definitely come across this person. And what they wanted me to do for the very first audition was to imagine that I'm on the top deck of a bus. I'm on my phone one like this. And I'm talking to my friend about, you know, what I got up to last night and talking very loudly and obnoxiously. <laughs> and, uh, and I just had to do that, just improvise for you know, five or 10 minutes or something. And of course I was just absolutely, I, just, I remember saying to people, God, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm meeting Chris Morris. So just to, just to do that, it's like, you know, mm. whatever happens with it, uh, just, just to be in the room with him, <laughs> just be absolutely incredible. And uh, I was also quite scared because he had a sort of reputation of being this, the sort of Darth Vader of comedy. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, he did. But of course, he's, he wasn't like that at all. He was a very sweet man. No, yeah, I know he's lovely. But yeah, he did have this sort of reputation of being this bad boy. And I think he'd just done, in the last year or two prior to my meeting him, he'd done the uh, Brass Eye Pedophile Special, mm. which had got, you know, a huge amount of complaints and stuff. So, uh yeah, I, I went into the um, little room studio at the bottom of Talkback, and I met him down there. And we did this, and he kind of um, he was he was you know he was obviously quite liked it, and so, so we did we did a bit of it and a bit of improvisation. I was in there for about half an hour, I think. And well, according to Rachel Freck, the casting director, I was the first person to go in for any character in that show. She always says, "You were my hole in one." Um, <laughs> Because after that, so about a couple of weeks later, they said, oh, yeah, we'd like to see Nick again. And then there was this process of probably, God, I mean, about a year, I would say, where I would go in every week or every couple of weeks and we would just spend a morning and afternoon, sometimes a whole day, improvising. Mm -hmm. And Chris and Charlie would write a script and it would be, I mean, I always used to think the script that they gave us was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and I thought, well, how can we, how can we improve upon this? But then they said, right, well, let's try, let's throw the scripts away and let's try this and let's try that and let's let's do this. What if, you know, and just meanwhile, they were saying to me, 
Chris was constantly in contact and he was emailing and we were meeting up and he was saying, you need to go to Shoreditch, you need to go to Hoxton, you need to go to these places and you need to be amongst these people mm. because they're everywhere. <laughs> and he told me the places to go. And sometimes we'd go together. Charlie, Chris and I would go together and we'd sort of trawl the, um, the pubs of East London. Or there'd be a, Chris would get, you know, somehow he'd hear when we'd hear about this party that was happening. It's big sort of, I remember there was a, I think it was Dazed and Confused had a party in something like the Truman Brewery near Old Street. And, and, and they sort of hired the whole place out. And I, I went there and I just walked around and just sort of tried to mingle and mm. meet people and proper, proper research. Did you ever do Nathan to them? No, I didn't. No. I sort of, um, I, but I, I tried to sort of fit in, but I didn't ever do the character. No. But I mean, a lot of that sort of, a lot of the stuff that we did on those research, you know, just the things people said to us ended up in the show. Mm. And, you know, we, we tried to mine the truth. And so as a process of, of research, you know, in television, mm. you know, this went on for about a year. And then we did a pilot and then waited another year. And then we did the, the, the series. So it was kind of two years of, you know, pretty detailed research. And it was what you what every actor dreams of, mm. you know, to be, to be supported in that way creatively. And then for it to turn out to be as good as you hoped. Yeah, exactly. I it, mean, it caused a real stir, didn't it, at the time? It did cause a stir. But, I mean, to be honest, I don't think it was as successful as they'd hoped it would be. I mean, it was critically, you know, well-received. But it didn't get huge ratings. Oh. It didn't, lots of people didn't watch it. And I think it's interesting when you look back now, because now it's got a sort of this real cult status, I think, you know. Um, but it actually wasn't watched by very many people, but it has lasted. But I think that's the case for a lot of shows, that actually, to begin with, it doesn't really catch on and with a great big crowd. Uh, people think it is niche. But that was sort of the case with um, with the first series of Blackadder. Yeah. It didn't really get a great rating. It was this, you know, what are we going to do with this new bloke, Rowan Atkinson? Everybody knows he's funny. What are we going to do? And there it is. Yeah. You know? And it was sort of him trying things out and seeing if it would work. You could definitely feel that with Nathan Barley, that it was one of those programmes that had you carried on doing it for five series of it, it would have become an extraordinarily powerful thing in, in television. Absolutely. I mean, I really, I really do think that. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. I think part of the problem in terms of the viewing figures was that people didn't know who he was. I think certainly if you didn't live in London, I mean, now the idea of, a, you know, a Shoreditch hipster is almost a, a you know, a, a caricature. It's almost a stereotype. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows exactly what you mean when you use the word hipster. I mean, they've, they've infiltrated all aspects of, of the country there. You know, the, there'll be a hipster cafe in pretty much any <laughs> village, village you care to mention. But back then, that idea of the hipster hadn't quite crossed over into the mainstream. It was still really niche. Mm. And so I think that there, it was it was hard for you know a lot of people to relate, but that's why I think it's it's now it's got this cult following. And when I think it, when it was the ten year or I think it was the ten year anniversary, the Guardian did a big feature on it and you know talked about how it, it had predicted the future, which you know mm. it, it did in lots of ways. And um, I mean they're they're so you know they're so switched on Chris and Charlie. And they really did know what they were doing. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was just a, an incredible experience and one that I'm so grateful to have had. Mm -hmm. I think it sort of paved the way for lots of other things. And, um, and it was just an incredibly enriching and 
gorgeous time. There's also there's also the aspect that you know we were all quite young and fearless and having a really good time. <laughs> knocking about london and so that was all happening as well so yeah, yeah. it was a really good time well, it was a great thing whatever happened to those two <laughs> i know yeah <laughs> i know uh, brilliant brilliant to get to work with them brilliant to do a thing like that and for those of us who did watch it and loved it it is really uh, i think a, a seminal piece of television in these days where we don't have to use a vcr go back and look at it i say yeah absolutely i mean i think it's i think it's on all four mm. um, but it's um I just absolutely loved it, and I'm really proud to have been in it. Great. All right. Well, we put that telephone, the mobile phone, in to remind you of it. The Wasp T12, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Lovely. OK, so we've got one more to put in there. Yes. But this is something that you want to get rid of. This is something that I want to get rid of. Yeah. This is a bad on-stage experience uh-huh. that I had. I did a play called Kafka's Dick by Alan Bennett mm-hmm. at the Theatre Royal Bath in... 2014 um yes because it was it was the year my daughter was born and um it's quite a complicated play it's quite a difficult play because it sort of it doesn't feel sometimes entirely linear it had that thing where there's a line that uh, you say in in one bit that's almost identical huh. to another line that you say three or four pages later mm-hmm. and loads of stuff happens in those three or four pages which if you said the wrong one means that the play completely goes off. <laughs> and it was press night. Oh, no. Royal Bath. And uh, obviously a full house. And we'd had, you know, the previews had gone well, but, you know, not brilliantly. And we'd been working on it all through previews. And then when it got to press night, uh, the director, David Grindley, had given us really good notes and he was kind of... Um, and we felt quite confident, but there was always a slight element of... I don't know. We're not quite sitting in this properly. We don't. We don't really. We're not really a hundred percent in charge of this of this stallion that we're riding. Mm. And I said the wrong line. Oh, okay. So so basically, the first twenty minutes of the play had gone brilliantly, better than they'd ever gone. And we were thinking, this is great. The audience were with us. It was a, you know one of those lovely feelings where we felt we were all in this together, <laughs> and it was fantastic. And then I said. The wrong line. I basically skipped, I think, three or four pages ahead. And it completely, I looked at Sam Spiro, who was playing my wife, and we looked at each other and we didn't know what to do. There was a moment of, oh, fuck, what, what are we going to do? It's almost at that moment, isn't it, as if you want to come clean and just go to everybody, I've gone too far, I'm going to have to stop and go back, I'm sorry. Well, actually, that would have been a much better thing to do because, <laughs> I mean, but, but you know, you, you kind of think, I can't, I can't stop the artifice, I've no. got to carry on, I've got to pretend I'm still in charge of this thing. <laughs> and we, I remember doing a, a lot of things, I remember Sam just started tight, we were in this um, sort of, Room, she started tight. Right, well, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. She kept saying, "It's going to be fine." Okay, all right. It's going... And we were just, you know, desperately, desperately padding <laughs> and trying to find some kind of hook that we could pin it on and sort of go, "All right, well, we're back here." Yeah. But we couldn't. Oh God! And all of a sudden, two of the other characters just came on stage, <laughs> and I think they came on to sort of rescue us. Yes. And then they went to a different bit, and. We just ran off stage. (laughs) 
I just thought we've got to look at a script. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I am. I don't know who I am. I don't know what's going on. And, and I think it was the same for her. And we were kind of like in a blind panic because usually in those situations, you do get it back. Mm. You do somehow sort of rest it back. And it's, but we weren't sort of, we weren't fully in charge of it, uh, in, in control of the play. It, you know, that's what it demonstrated to us, mm. that we weren't fully there. Yeah. And so we, we went off stage and we somehow eventually managed to, we came back on, we reset to a bit where we didn't, we sort of seamlessly, although I'm sure that the audience knew. And then of course the, the rest of the play, you know, was just, was just horrendous. <laughs> it was, it was an endurance test. Every line that came out of my mouth, I was thinking, is this the right, am I, you know, am I saying the right thing? Am mm. I standing in the right place? What's going on? I just, and I remember this feeling of, I've just got to get to the end of this performance because I really did think that, you know, am I going to be able to do this again? You know, it's just, a, it's just such a horrific, horrible feeling. Oh. And I had this big speech at the end of the show and I was doing the speech, but it was, it, it felt like, you know, all the work I'd done on that speech was kind of not there because I was just trying to get to the end. Mm. <laughs> I was just trying to not mess up again and just get to the end. And we did, we managed to get to the end and then the director, the lovely David Grindley, who was brilliant and, and, and so supportive, you know, just sort of, he looked like a broken man. <laughs> and I said, I'm so, so sorry. Cause I think it was my fault. And what I did kind of like messed everyone else up to such an extent that eventually actually Daniel Wayman, who played Kafka, he was the one who really got it back on. and He kind of like rescued it. But by this point, we were off stage. We'd done that awful thing of running off because we didn't know where we were or what we were doing. Oh, God. And then afterwards, David came up to us and I said, I'm just so sorry. I, you know, I'm, I'm just so sorry because, you know, I completely fucked it up. Mm. And he was like, I had to leave. Oh. I didn't watch the rest of the show. I couldn't, I couldn't. He sort of hugged me and was very kind and generous. But he said, I, I did have to leave. So I didn't watch the rest of the show because he said it was going so well. Oh. And then I just couldn't watch you. So he'd left the theatre. Mm. I mean, that's how bad it was. And my agent was in oh. and I said, uh, did you notice? And she said, mm, not really. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they do. They lie. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I was kind of, I was kind of petrified of press nights. You know, I did, I've done, sort of, I don't know how many plays I've done since then, but, you know, three or four, I guess. And, and, and every press night, I've sort of thought, oh, God, am I going to be able to do it? Am I going to be able to? It's given it, you know, a much keener shot. Yes, it's both. weird, isn't it? There's no real reason why there being the press in should affect it, but it does. And almost every actor will at some stage have been in the situation where somebody jumps. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and it's, it's always awful. And, in fact, I once did a play... And the best recovery I ever saw was um, an act called John Castle. And we were all fumbling around trying to get back to where we should be. And he suddenly went, hold! And put his hands up in the air and we all froze. And he went, there's something very important I need to say. And he just went back to where it had gone wrong. Oh, that's brilliant. That's what you need. And actually, I think that's what Daniel Wayman did. He kind of, he kind of realised where we needed to be and, and, and got us back there. But, but the heart racing, you know, terror of it was just awful. And I've had a, I had a similar, I mean, the other thing I nearly put in, which isn't quite as, doesn't feel quite as bad, but it, I just feel I've terribly let someone down was when I was off for someone. Have you ever done that? No. Oh, God. 
Well, I hope you never do. I was doing a play at the Donmar and I was in the dressing room <laughs> hearing an anecdote from Gorn Granger. And he's got lots. And he was fascinating. And so I was sitting there, so sort of completely gripped and enthralled by this anecdote. And I suddenly heard Tobias Menzies over the uh, tannoy saying, I'm just going to go and get Mr. Worthy. And I thought, fucking hell. And so I had to, uh, you know, I, for a moment I was in stasis going, I, I can't believe, I'm sure it's not, oh God, it definitely is. Mm. And that was the most horrendous feeling as well, because that was purely just unprofessionalism. <laughs> I've had it happen to me. I've uh, been on stage where somebody, and then you hear thumping footsteps as people rush, when <laughs> normally people are quiet. They rush through doors and come charging on, and they yeah. rush on doing their tie-up. Oh, God. It was awful. Horrible. It was absolutely awful. And made sort of somehow even even worse by how lovely Tobias was about it. I just kept saying, I'm just so sorry. <laughs> it was absolutely fine. And it got to the point where he said, okay, you've got to stop apologising now. Mm. You know, and he was he was just so, so lovely about it. Well, you know, um, there is a very strong argument for the things that you really remember and the things you really love about doing the theatre are those moments where it goes wrong. They're the ones that stick with you. Yeah. And in a way, that is the essence of being live. So you should embrace the chaos, I think. Absolutely. And actually, you know, when you're feeling terribly nervous before a press night show, I always sort of think to myself, you know, there's that thing of, you know, why do we do this? This is just <laughs> insane. What are we doing? But then I sort of think, well, actually, this is really living. Mm. I know that sounds like, you know, you're just, you're entertainers. That's that's not important. and that's. But actually, you, you are putting yourself out there and it, it does feel like you're really getting the most out of life yes. you know it's the um the vital stuff i just feel it's 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 really living that's the best way i can think of to describe it yes people always say to really live you should be in the moment yes and of course that's what you're doing when you're doing a play yeah that's that's a really good that's a really good way of putting it yeah there's nothing quite like it is there no and great to be on stage with the lovely sam spiro Oh, yeah, she's she's amazing. Mm. She's amazing. She keeps popping up on this podcast. She's been mentioned again and again by other actors, so I think it's about time I got her on. Has she not done it? No. I'd love to talk to Sam. Oh, she'd be great. Yeah, yeah she'd be brilliant. The rest of the run was lovely. We had a really gorgeous time, mm. you know, bath in the summer, and we didn't make that mistake again. I mean, you know, it was it was all fine. No. Or I didn't, rather. I didn't make that mistake again. Did you ever become relaxed enough to sort of deliberately... My brain, I'm terrible in these situations. I would have, about two weeks later, have got to that moment, started the wrong line and gone, oh, no, no, and then gone back, just to make everybody panic. Oh, God, would you? Yes. <laughs> are, you are you someone who likes to corpse people as well? <laughs> I am, yes. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Oh, God. I mean, uh, yes, those people. <laughs> Have you ever worked with Kevin Bishop? Yes, he's brilliant. He is. He used to do that a lot and um, almost impossible to control my giggling. <laughs> Never says the same line twice. No, and always like adds little bits mm. to try and make you laugh and pretty much always does. Yes. Yeah, I love Kevin. He's yeah, great. he's a great actor. Uh, there we are, yeah. okay. We could wander on all night, but we shall take that awful moment from Kafka's dick and put it into the time guts room. Bury it deep. Thank you. You'll never have to worry about it again. Thank you very much. Nick, it's been an enormous pleasure to sit here nursing my sore throat and listening to you tell me the lovely stories about your life. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you very much for asking me, and I hope you feel better soon. I've really enjoyed it. Good. I was a bit nervous, but I've loved it. It's been a really wonderful experience. It's like a sort of warm bath. <laughs> Thank you.
You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest wallowing in his warm bath, Nicholas Burns. My thanks to Nick for putting up with my voice and for you for bearing with us and listening to the podcast. If you liked it, then please do rate it on the podcast provider you're listening on and subscribe for all new episodes as they're released. You can even write a short review on some providers. Good luck to you. And if you hated it, good luck to us. However, if you enjoyed it, then you can follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, where we're happy to answer questions and listen to your suggestions for future guests. The theme music was written by Pass the Peas Music and is available on Spotify. This was a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Now, luckily, my voice has almost recovered and my dulcet tones have returned. I didn't even have to go to the doctors, fortunately. I'm not on good terms with my doctor at the moment. The last time I saw him, he said I'd started walking with a limp. (laughs) I've never noticed it, I said. But he said, you've got a misshapen buttock, if you don't mind me saying so. I said, I do mind you saying so. I think you've got a downright cheek. He said, no, you've got a downright cheek. That's why you're walking with a limp. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.